This is part three of Four Parts Podcast. All right, we're going to pick up where we left off. And uh, it's, a, it's a whole new day for part two of uh, beekeeping honeybees with Jacqueline Freeman. And uh, uh, I think where we're going to start today is um, we're going to talk about the permaculture playing cards <laughs> uh, and, and the six of diamonds. So, so Jacqueline, first I want to thank you for helping me with this card. What? Uh, I, I know that Alexander and I were on the phone, and I think we had you on the phone at the same time, but we, we kept sending you the latest image for the six of diamonds, honeybees, and, um, uh, and then we kept kind of going back and forth and back and forth because I think that there were all the things that you wanted to say about bees. They could hardly barely fit on one little playing card. <laughs> And and then I think there's like two or three things for which I felt were more important. So it's kind of like we had to, you know, your top things and my top things. And I mean, I'm I am such a powerful advocate of the bee hut, and I know that you do the bee hut. Um, and and I'm going to pretend to myself that it was my suggestion to you that manifested at your home as as your gazebos used. To, to um, shelter the bees. I'm going to pretend that that was my influence on you, uh, but but if it's not true, you don't have to correct me. <laughs> you know, my bee hut. What that came out of was a few years ago. I gave a talk on the history of bees at you know at a bee club, and I went back and did you know from the earliest time all the way up. And it was funny because I got up to like the 1500s and the 1600s, and I was doing some old images of. Uh, of how they kept bees in UK. So I had some nifty pictures of uh, England and Wales and Ireland. And, and I noticed the, a real consistency between them, which was that they didn't, they had the, you know, they were still using the, um, the old, what you see, the yeah. old image of the Winnie the Pooh and the honey hive kind of thing, you know, the, the skep. Uh, but they had these it was uh, they had these places where they had where they kept them. It was like a stone wall, and then it would have a hole carved in, a shelf carved in, so that the skep would sit back out of the weather, and it stayed dry. And it was and I just kept looking at all these pictures because, of course, these things have still you know you can still see these things from the 1600s if you go over there. And I kept looking at them, going, Hey, wait a minute. I live over here in the Pacific Northwest where we get a lot of weather and, you know, other parts of the country, same thing. You guys get real major weather up there in Montana. And I was thinking if they were taking care of their bees by putting them out of the weather like this, that's something that we ought to be doing too. So, yes, I uh, hijacked this lovely little gazebo we had up in our field and took it over and, and put a whole bunch of my beehives in there. Um, basically, what I want is that they're sheltered. You know that, and if you think of how bees build in the wild, bees do not build a house out in the middle of the open. They don't do that, and yet that's what you see all the time. And the intention in that with a beekeeper is that you that you want to get your bees up and out early and working as long as the sun the day is long. Um, so you put them out where they get maximum sun. And, you know, I, I see if you're pushing towards production. That's one of those human-centric versus bee-centric things you do. But I keep going back to bee-centric. Where do the bees want to be built? You know, where do they want to live? So they build their houses on the edges of like a field where it transitions to a forest or something. So I see that um, also in, you know, when you put it into a, into a shelter, This it's an edge. So I think those are good locations. 
it's an edge and it's usually pretty high up. Oh, and they want to be high. They'd love to be 20 feet high. Yeah, yeah. a little impractical for us, but, you know. <laughs> so it's a little odd when you see those those white boxes yeah. on the ground and it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of not where they really want to be. Yeah, and you would never see um, that in, in uh, bees if they chose on their own to build a house that you don't see that. The hive itself is up off the ground a distance, a good distance. They'll, they'll live there. I mean, they're accommodating, but it doesn't right. serve them as well, I think. Well, I think there's a lot of funguses in the soil, um, and there's there's a lot of biological activity down there next to the soil that might not go good with a colony. I always think of it like the vapors, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's kind of like, you know, stuff works its way up, and other creepy crawlies will get up there and carry some stuff up, and it's like, eh, it might not be good for the bees. Yeah. My hives, so, are all, my hives are all at least three feet off the ground, and some are more than that. Some are 12 feet off the ground. And, you know, I just, like, if you had a house that had a second-floor deck, for example, that second floor deck would probably make bees a lot happier than being down on the ground in the front yard. So um, uh, the car. Now, of course, one one last thing about this is I'm I'm not. And in fact, I think you might agree with me on this, because when I was at your place, your hives are not painted. And that's always something that's, I'm just weird about that. I don't like I like to avoid paint wherever I can. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, yeah, I, you can paint them, and I know most people do paint them, but, you know, I'm kind of on the extreme edge here. I'm, I'm always looking at how do the bees do it. So, you know, I mean, if you wanted it to be water resistant, you could always rub some wax on it if you wanted, and that's probably about as far as I'd go. Uh, and I have done that, but not so much. Uh, really, what I'm looking for is wood breathes. And I think there's, when you're letting, you know, the, the bees just by breathing inside of there and, and by taking the moisture out of the nectar to make it into honey, there's a lot of moisture in there as well. That breathing, um, that can, the moisture can pass right through the wood that way. So that's one of the things I, I kind of have in the back of my mind when I leave my hives unpainted. Okay. Oh, I like, yeah, I like that. The, the, the breathing factor. Mm -hmm. So, and, and then of course, um, we, in a, in a way of thanking you for helping us with this card, um, uh, then I, I, you know, we hit a little something on the card for you. That I can see right away. <laughs> <laughs> How long did it take you till you found it? Oh, probably about 10 days. And I was showing somebody the deck and I was leafing through them and I was just admiring how pretty that little six of diamonds B card is. And then I oh, saw my name. <laughs> it was just a cute little moment. So we've got on 26 of the cards, there's a name hidden in there. Um, and on one of the cards, we've hidden a needle, kind of like, you know, needle in the haystack. So um, I, I don't know. I, I kind of I kind of like that. Um I found some of them. It is kind of, it is really fun that you did that. <laughs> I so my granddad have found them all yet. My granddad's on one, and my aunt who took care of me when I was a teenager is on one. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them have to do with you know the 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 people who supported the Kickstarter or the the um, the people um, who who supported um, you know all you know the, the a lot of the different things that we're doing or or something. So those are the 26 names that, that appear. So I, I just kind of thought it was an extra bit of 
fun. And and Alexander was a real trooper about it. Um because uh, at first he didn't understand what I was even asking for. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like, what is what are you talking about? A bit of whimsy. And, that was a bit of whimsy. <laughs> there you go. There you go. And so then he got into it. He's like, and so now Alexander hid some names on there too. And, and so, <laughs> Fun. Um, so we got, yeah. All right. So uh, that's that's the honeybee card. I think the honeybee card, somebody was kind of asking like, okay, well, what are your general principles on, on raising honeybees? And, and so I just sent them an image of the card. I kind of feel like, we did a really good job summarizing on this card. <laughs> In a little piece of paper the size of a playing card, I'll say. I've never seen it that condensed. But yeah. Yes. I, yeah. We should, maybe we should make uh, – I know Alexander set it up so we could get posters of a single card. Maybe we ought to do that with this card, and, and some people will be – into that. I don't know. Maybe we should make we should set that up. That could be kind of a cool thing. That's kind of an obvious next step with it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think some people would, would like to have a poster of just the six of diamonds. Um yeah, that's a possibility. All right. Now, yesterday, um when when we were wrapping up, uh then then we wanted to go on to this new topic and you said, you know what? Let's take let's do that one tomorrow. Yeah. And so, so here we are. And and it is a fascinating topic. And we still have so much more to go through. We have a list of things to still talk about. And I'm sure that as we touch on each of these lists, we'll come up with with uh three new things for each item on the list that need to be <laughs> squeezed into this podcast, which I'm really grooving on because we're being very thorough, I think. I think this will be a very complete uh, podcast on on bee care and, and mostly about how it compares to organic and to conventional because I do think that the way permaculturalists care for bees is very different from the way everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. Just- so next topic is, Setting up an empty hive and baiting it. Yep, bait hives. This is, you know, I can jump right in on this one. Uh, I I love this topic. Uh, Bait hives, swarms in general. I think if I had to pick any one topic about bees, I just love talking and doing anything to do with swarms. So what happens when the bees swarm is, you know, they're going out and they're looking for a new home, and they'll send some scouts out ahead of time to look for a new home. And what they're looking for is there are some real consistencies in what what they're seeking when they're looking for it. They're looking for something that's, uh, you know, a certain height and size and elevation and the opening is defensible and things like that. So these scouts, if you put bait hives out there, see, the, let me back up a second. First of all, here's how you can get bees. You can buy them. Well, you can buy them, and like we've already mm-hmm. talked about, you know, small genetic pool, and um, you know, generally they tend to be weaker bees than bees that are out in the open like this. And the second thing is, you can get some good bees from people you know who are raising bees the right way, and their bees are going to swarm every spring if they let them, and you can collect those swarms, and um, you know, you can get those. Now, that's a good idea because those are proven bees; those are bees that are being raised the right way, and probably pretty darn healthy too. Now, I think this is a really good point to talk about what exactly is a swarm, because it's not like the bees are saying, I hate you, I'm moving out. It's just the opposite, yeah. When they do leave, they've already done this 
really amazing thing. They've filled up their current hive to the max. They've, they've, the queen has laid enough eggs for the whole next generation of bees to come out, and a lot of them. Um, and then around that, they've already put in all of their pollen. The pollen is to feed the babies. So the baby food is in the nursery, all stored up. And then outside of that, it's packed to the gills with honey. So it's pretty tight in there. And that's part of the signal that tells the bees that it's time to swarm. They, they look around and it's like everything's full. You know, time for some of us to depart here and go off. And really, I think of it like they're, they're willing it to the next generation because the old bees leave and only the young and the unhatched bees are the ones left behind who sort of wake up into this, you know, bevy of riches around them. So it's just so generous on the bees' part. And there can only be one queen. It's kind of like the Highlander thing. There can be only one. And <laughs> So so the one queen leaves, but what's left behind? She has laid 15 to 20 eggs uh, that she'll leave behind. And, you know, this is one of the beauties of nature is redundancy. Uh, they don't need 20 queens. They're not even going to use 20 queens. You know, if there's, if there's 15 of them in there, 14 of them are not going to be new queens for this hive. But when after the swarm leaves, the well, actually, let me catch up to that. Uh, so there's a signal that goes out that says, hey, the hive is full, and the queen at that point will lay new queen eggs. And the, her handmaidens have made uh, the, the bees that take care of the queen that are around her, they've, uh, the, and the comb makers have gotten together and made special little cells, actually special big cells, because the queen egg is much bigger um, when it's hatching, when it's uh, in gestation. And then when she hatches, she's, of course, the biggest. So they make some that actually hang off the side of the combs, like little peanuts hanging vertically. It's really pretty cool. So then the queen eggs are laid and ready, and they're coming along. And then about typically, if you don't have rain, about eight days after the queen eggs are laid, that's when the hive will swarm. And it will always be on a sunny day, um, you know, pretty, usually pretty warm, too. If it's not, they'll wait a few days longer until the weather conditions are right. And then they take off and leave. And they're all going to take off and leave, and they're going to go perch usually on a tree branch somewhere. Um, and they'll hang out and wait until the scouts find them a new home. So back at the hive, what's happened is two-thirds of the hive leaves. All of the forager bees that are the older bees, they're off with the swarm, and the queen is off with it. And when uh, the reason that they they left so many queen eggs behind in there is because when those queens hatch out and then they go to mate with the drones up in the air, it's they have to fly a goodly distance to find where the drones are all congregated. And when they do that, well, you know, it could be the swallow that picks somebody off on the way back, you know, hence, hence their name. It's a swallow. <laughs> <laughs> I had a moment one day one day we were out in the field and my husband's favorite birds are the swallows and I was watching him just swooping around over the field and I'd been watching him for you know weeks months years and all of a sudden I went hey what are they eating you know huh and I just went my bees they're eating my bees <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> the day that Jacqueline Freeman first bought her, her bought her first shotgun, 
<laughs> Get away from my family. So those bees, anyway, one of those could be a queen on her way back from having been just been mated and heading back to her hive and, you know, gets eaten by a bird on the way back or or whoever knows what happens. But that's the redundancy. So maybe maybe seven bees make it back from all of that. And of those seven, there'll be a little catfight battle. Who's the strongest bee there? <clears throat> but you could even have it that the two bees, the, the two queen bees that are fighting it out, maybe they both get hurt. Well, those two are out of the running, too. Now you're down to like four. And maybe, uh, you know, three of them haven't even hatched out yet. So that one queen, no, queen number 11, is the one who makes it back alive, is undamaged, is now freshly mated. And she finds three eggs that haven't hatched yet. And she goes and drills a little hole in the side and stings them. She can sting multiple times. Stings them and then, ta-da, she emerges as the new queen of the old hive with all that. I mean, that's just an amazing process to me. So, And, and so it's at the, the movie Highlander is probably based on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So now, anyway, you've got this this swarm that took off, and I've walked inside of the middle of, numerous swarms because they happen up in my bee yard all the time in the springtime it's just amazing bees have a common consciousness they they are able to know what all the bees are thinking at the same time you know we we don't have that we have individuated single consciousness and the bees have they call it a unity you know all the bees know what everybody else is thinking at the same time and i really see this in action when there's a swarm so let's say my swarm just emptied out of the hive and they're all buzzing around and it's just it looks like pure chaos and it would freak out some people to to see that because they think killer bees or something it's it's not like that these bees just before they left they filled up their bellies with honey and they've got this little bit of honey in there, but it's enough that they couldn't. Some old beekeeper said to me one time, I said, well, how come they can't sting when they're in a swarm like that? And he said, oh, their bellies are so full of, of honey. They couldn't bend their little stinger around to do to sting you if they wanted to. They're just fat with honey. And they're, they've holding, they're holding this drop of honey that they've got in them because they may be hanging out on this tree with the swarm waiting for the scout bees, they could be out there two, three, four days. You know, that's all they got to eat in the meantime. So they'll stay there protecting the queen and keeping everybody at the proper hive, uh, the proper swarm temperature. Um, and, and you have, oh, I could go on and on on this topic. You know, when the bees are hanging, well, actually, actually let's go back to when the swarm is swarming. So that unity, I see this happen because that common consciousness in there, because these bees you know, you've got, let's say you've got 25,000 bees all swirling around in this great big mass that might be an area, say, 40 by 40 by 40 feet. And I could stand right in the middle. I can walk right through it. I have never been hit by a bee mistakenly bumping into me. I've never, I can raise my hand up through the swarm of bees and nobody will, you know, they all know where everybody Everybody is at all times. You know, twenty-five thousand bees, and nobody's bumping into each other. And I stand there and I watch, and yep, nobody's bumping into each other. It's amazing to me. It's like a flock of birds who all suddenly turn right, and they all know to turn right at that same split second. So the purpose of the swarm, although it looks chaotic, is to allow the queen to come out. And when she comes out, 
they need to protect her. She's the most important bee in the hive when they're moving a swarm, when they're moving to their new location. So all that chaos you see is their attempt to hide her. So if some bird said, ooh, lunch, uh, you know, they're going to look for the big fat one in the middle of it. That would be the queen. But they can't find her in the middle of that chaos. So they're doing all their chaotic flurrying, flying and flurrying around like that um, to conceal her. <clears throat> and then they'll go not a long distance, just a short distance, and they usually perch on a branch somewhere. And all the bees just, they come right out of the air and coalesce into this hanging, beautiful swarm um, just hanging on a branch. And the queen is somewhere in the very center of it, protected. And then they'll, they'll modify temperature while they're there because nights can get cold and days can get hot with these blanket bees on the outside. The blanket bees will stay out there and just be a blanket, just be a little body mass protecting the rest of the swarm underneath them. And when they get too cold, they burrow down into the that that cluster and they warm up and a new set of blanket bees is on the outside. So then they send off their scouts and uh a bunch of them will be out there. You know, you have a few hundred of them out there looking for the perfect new home for them. Sometimes the scouts have even figured it out ahead of time. And if they know ahead of time, well, then that swarm is going to land on a branch. They're going to wait just long enough to make sure everybody's with them, and then they'll up and leave. So if they know where they're going, they could be on that landed branch for 20 minutes. If they don't know where they're going yet, they might be there for three days. And I made a mistake one time. I had a, a friend of mine said, oh, man, next time you get a swarm, please, please, I will pull my kids out of school and throw them in the car and be up there. I can be there in 20 minutes if you give me a call for a swarm coming. <clears throat> he said, I so want my kids to see this. And I said, yeah, all right, I could do this. Now, the, the swarming part with the, everybody in the air, that doesn't last that long. But hanging on the tree branch you know, like I said, 20 minutes to three days. So I call him up. He goes, I am on my way. I'm grabbing the kids on the way. He literally arrived here 22 minutes after the phone call with his kids in the car. At 20 minutes, the bees, the scouts had already found a home. They knew it ahead of time. And the bees just, I was sitting there with all my stuff to collect the swarm, just right there, three feet away from the bees, waiting for him to show up. And all of a sudden, the whole the whole cluster just lifted into the air and headed across the field into the forest. I was like, oh, man, I had them right here. <laughs> now, we know that uh, bees, worker bees, will, will go uh, three miles, five miles to forage. Yeah. But how far will a swarm go? Well, they don't generally want to be too, too close to where they just came from. They want to be a, a good distance away. So I put bait hives up. For my to collect the swarms, so I really would like them to be at least a few hundred feet away if I can do that, or if I want to be really smart, I would place them even like a quarter mile away. These scouts are out looking all the time before the swarm, during the swarm, and uh, you know they're looking for suitable homes. So you can go and collect a swarm of which, good lord, I, I we got 45 calls for swarms last year, and when I teach my classes. People who come to the swarm classes and know how to take care of bees in what I consider a really good way for bees and know how to collect swarms in really sensitive and gentle ways, they go on my swarm list. And then we do this really nice thing where the first time out, you're you're fresh, green. You've never done it before. You're going to go with somebody experienced, and you're going to be the helper. 
and the next call that comes in, you're going to be the experienced one, and you're going to take somebody who's never been out before, and you're going to show them how to do it. So that way we can pass a lot of swarms down through the group without me having to go on every single call. And at the end of the season, everybody knows how to do it and has done it at least a few times. So they all go help each other do it. It's, it's really fun. All right, so um, uh, back back to our starting point, setting up an empty hive and baiting it. Yep, so a bait hive. Here's what you want for a bait hive. You want something that the scouts are going to look at and go, ideal, this is perfection. We got it hand, you know, handled. We're, we're in here. About the, the size is about a 10-gallon box. So, and you can use, you can use a box from your beehive if you want, um, or you can just make what we call a bait box that um, is lightweight and easy to put up high. Uh, you want it to be up about 8 to 15 feet. So you can put it up, you know, you can, you can bang a nail into the tree. It's got to be a really long nail. And you can put some, uh, you know, a hook on the back of it to hang it from a tree, something, you know, that you can get up with that's pretty easily accessible. Um, if you put that nail in, it's got to be, and you probably can help me on this, Paul. What kind of nail is it that I want? It's one that's a few inches long because the wind uh, is going to blow stuff around up there. So you don't want like, it just to be like a roofing nail. Like a 16-penny nail? Uh, something it's about that's about three and a half inches long it's a standard roofing nail that's you know it's 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 a kind that's about it's about three and a half inches long yeah and you're going to pound it in a good way so you don't want to have just a little little tiny bit hanging out um i i don't know are they bigger than that there's bigger ones yeah but but i i when i'm putting holes into trees or you know something like that i i prefer to make a hole all the way through and put a bolt in but you know I, that's a far more industrial strength kind of a thing i you know it's more the we, we can talk about how you build tree houses and stuff <laughs> don't be putting a whole bunch of nails in the tree you put one bolt in not a bunch of not a skillion little nails well with this what you're actually doing is it isn't it, you, of course it has to go into the tree a bit but it's more how much you've got left over on the outside that the bait box can hang on. And that way, if it rattles around in the wind, it's not going to knock it off. Okay. All right. Yeah. Of course, you do it in an angle so that, you know, it's not straight out. And, the you know, the, a gust from behind could knock it off. You, you want it at a, you know, a V angle so that you can slip it right over mm-hmm. there. So you're not – so this is not going to be like you take your standard Langstroth hive. Yeah. And set it up in some place and then bait it. You're saying that's not what to do. Um, you can. I have. <laughs> but you want it to be the, – the size you want is about 20 by 10 by 8. That's that's about the size. And just have about um, uh, eight frames that you can hang in there, free comb frames, you know, just eight little bars across the top that you can transfer into your into your hive when you after the bees are on them. Um, if you're building a bait box, they really – bees like old wood. They like seasoned old wood, so ideally you'd build it out of old wood. It, you could use an eight deep lang, you know, twenty by ten by eight. Um, mm-hmm. Put screws on the box. Do not put nails. This is a key thing. Do not put nails because it's going to move around in the wind, and nails will will work their way out. Screws are really really important. Could I say that three times? Use screws. <laughs> use screws. Definitely use screws. Okay. Um, 
Uh, so you're thinking screws. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> screws. <laughs> and the hanger is going to be on an angled long nail. And, you know, there's some plans for this at a place called learningbeekeeping.com uh, with some nice images. So you might as well just head on over there and look at look at that. Okay. Uh, All right. Ten-gallon right. box, eight frames, what you want. So what you want is you can use this bait box time and time again. You just take, once the bees are settled in there, you just take the frames out and put them in your fixed hive that's back home. So you don't have to shake the bees. You don't have to do anything. They will already be building comb on your on your bars. So isn't that nice and easy? You want the opening to be about the size of a half dollar, about, like I said, 8 to 15 feet high, preferably on the edge of a forest. Or if you have a big open field and there's um, one big tree in the middle of your – a big old oak tree in the middle of your field, that would be an ideal place for it. They're looking for something that's a little different than the other terrain, an edge or a focal point like a big tree in in a big field. And then – what you put in there is I always sprinkle a little bit of hive debris. I want them to think bees have already been there, which is something that helps them trust the situation more. Other bees have been here. This will be fine. So I take a little bit of crumbled up comb, um, just kind of sweeping out the bottom of whatever was on the floor of my healthy hive. So that hive debris. Um, and lemongrass oil is what you want to use for a scent. And the lemongrass oil, it smells like the pheromone of a queen. Isn't that nice? She smells like lemongrass oh. oil. And it's not lemon oil. It's not, God forbid, I was reading on a list one time, somebody was like, yeah, I sprayed lemon pledge in there. <laughs> like, oh. oh, no. Just because that smells lemony to a human, there uh. probably wasn't even any lemon in that stuff. Oh, God. So lemongrass well, now- oil. One of the things you said is I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and it's like you're putting a little bit of um, beehive debris in there. Uh-huh. And and I'm kind of thinking like, okay, let's say that you're a scout bee and you show up to a place and there's no bees there, but there's some beehive debris. I'm I'm kind of like if I'm that worker bee, the scout bee, if I'm that scout bee, I'm kind of looking at this thinking like, whoa, what went down here? <laughs> and Whatever happened, I mean, boy, they destroyed everything, you know. And and so to me, it's like there's some sort of, I would think that as a scout bee, I'd be thinking like something horrible happened here, so we don't want to live here and have that horrible thing happen to us. I think it's more that the scent attracts them. And then they okay. So it's the scent of, of uh, you know, wax of something. And wax has little bits of essential oils in it and things, too, that are built right into the wax. So it just kind of has a a smell of something familiar to them. So there could be, like, dead bodies all around and stuff like that. Boy, it smells like cookies here. (laughs) No, I wouldn't do that. I would just – really what I'm thinking about is taking just a a little hunk of comb, old comb, and crumbling it up in my fingers and sprinkling it on the bottom. That's what I'm really thinking of. And then lemongrass. Now, let me tell you how to put this in. You take – if you just put some lemongrass oil in there, it's going to dissipate in a few days. So what you do is you take some lemongrass oil and you put just a few drops, like, uh, you know, uh, eight to ten drops of it, and always get organic, of course, on a cotton ball. And then you stick that cotton ball inside of a little baggie and you almost seal it, you know, one of those zip top ones, almost seal it. Leave it open just like maybe an inch or two. So what it's going to do is it's going to keep the oil on the cotton ball in there yeah, there's going to be enough to waft out, and the scout bee will find it. 
I've seen people, you know, like a liberally dosing, dousing the um, the interior of the hive with lemongrass oil. It's like, oh my God, think of how sensitive the the bees' senses are. This is like, you know, the woman who wears too much perfume, uh, you know, sitting next to you. Ugh. So you just want it so there's enough waft to just call that scout bee over there to come check it out. That's all it is. So if you put it in the baggie and you leave the baggie open an inch with the co- soaked cotton ball with eight to ten drops of lemongrass oil in it in there, that's enough to just put out a calling card. And it lasts about three days. Um, if you put it in the baggie on the cotton ball, it'll last you a few weeks. And you probably should be checking this bait hive about once a week. You know, the bees will move in. You don't have to be out there every single day. The bees will move in. They'll start building their comb on it. And then you just come by every, I'd say every five to seven days and take a look. Are there bees going in and out? If there are bees going in and out, you caught, you caught your swarm. Bring it home, open it up, lift out the bars, and put the bars in exactly the way they are, and off you go. And you always have to do that exactly the way they are because they they design the comb as they're doing it for the different parts of their housekeeping. So don't rearrange the bedroom furniture in the middle of the night. So if somebody's living in a moderately rural, semi-suburban kind of area, I mean, I'm trying to think of like population and there's other beekeepers around and things like that. And then somebody just, you know, sets this up in their yard mm-hmm. um, and and they got it all set up really in the early spring. Yeah, like right now. Now. Yeah. now is the time. We're at the end of March. This is the time when the bait hives go out. Then... Um, what what um, uh, what is a vague idea of like the probability that a hive will actually show up? Or I mean, sorry, you know, a colony. I, I just gave a talk on this down at the Organic Beekeepers Conference last month down in Arizona, and I asked for a show of hands. It's all beekeepers, and I said, "How many of you have done bait hives?" A bunch of them had, and I said, "What? How much? How much?" And we kind of went around, you know, how many hives did you put out, and how many got swarms? And it was about fifty percent. So okay. those are excellent odds, really. And if you're, if you're not getting something, if you're putting out five hives and nobody inhabits any of them, and you know there's bees around, um, you know, I would relook at something, you know, recheck where you're putting them. It's maybe a, a place that wasn't very attractive to them. Well, I think if you're very rural and there's not very many, you know, beekeepers around, then your odds of getting a hive are or getting a swarm are probably pretty small. Um, not necessarily, because they'll be, remember, the feral hives are all putting out their swarms, too. And okay. bees are everywhere. You, I think you've got pretty much just as much chance anywhere. I, I would say, you know, there's a lot of bees that end up, free bees running around in the city because of backyard beekeepers. Uh, but there's just as many out in the country. It's just they tend to be more feral out in the country. And so uh, to take something you said a moment ago and reword it slightly, if if you have a really awesome uh, colony and great hive, you know, it's all going great, but it's like uh, they're getting pretty full up in there. If you were to set another empty hive right next door to it and put the lemongrass oil in it and stuff like that, they're probably not going to move into that because it's too close. Yep, and that's the first year I did bait hives. That's exactly what I did. You know what I got? Zero percent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. So it's but if you did the exact same thing and you are like 300 yards away, mm-hmm. 
good chance that it'll work out. Much better chance because the bees don't, you know, they want to move away. They want to expand their genetics. They want to move further away. So that, and now that doesn't mean I can't bring those bees back and put them in the hive that's next to where they came out of. I, I probably wouldn't put them right next to the one they came out of. I'd probably, you know, move it someplace a little different. But once they've started building the comb inside the bait hive, they are married to those bars. And they'll be like, yep, this is where we live from now on, where the bars are, whether it's up in that bait hive in the tree or whether it's back in the apiary in your backyard, they're married to those bars. All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go on to the next tidbit. Are you ready? I am. I am. Okay. Um, I, I think the thing I want to do is, is I want to focus for a little bit on colony collapse disorder. You know, before that, why don't we cover, since it seems to go right into it, why don't we just talk about the different kinds of hives right here, since we're sure. on that topic anyway, when you bring the beehive, the bees home, um, there's a few different kinds of hives. There's the um, the Langs, the Langstroth hives, which is what most people have. And the Langstroths were designed, uh, actually what they're best for is production. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So if you, of all the different kinds of hives, you'll probably get the maximum amount of honey out of a Langstroth hive because it's designed to do that. Um, I'm, I don't find the Langstroths to be as as kind to the bees for what the bees want. I mean, there's certainly adequate and they're okay and I've used them myself I don't use them anymore but um they're okay you just have to tend to them a whole lot <clears throat> I, I think there's a, a little too much having to fuss with them and opening the opening the hive and letting the heat out and letting the scent out like we talked about yesterday a little too much fussing for me in there so I'm not a, a big fan of the Langstroth, but they, they really are a very easy hive to learn on. So I'm not going to make anybody wrong for having them, but my guess is if you have bees for a while, you're probably going to progress onto another kind of hive. Uh, the, another kind is if you really want to be hands-off beekeeping, there's Warre hives. And Warre hives are designed really they're designed around the principle of, of a, a hollow tree standing in the forest somewhere. They're vertical hives like Langs are. And they have a big open space, just bars on the top of each of the boxes that's built on top of the next, bars that are open framed. There is, there's only a top bar on there. And the bees can build their comb freely to whatever size, shape they want. And often they'll just build them parallel. But sometimes, for some reason, they decide that they want to build them curved or whatever. And they'll do that. The worry hives, the advantage of them is it's very hands-off beekeeping. That kind of beekeeping is, you, you know, my worry hives, I only go in them two, three times a year. You know, in the springtime, how are you doing? Did you make it through the winter okay? Um, where are you at? Uh, right about the big part of the flow, I'll go in and see if there's extra honey, at, at extra honey left over from winter into springtime and the start of the flow is coming. That's when I can do my honey harvest. And then tail end of the summer, early fall, I may take a peek in again and just see how's it looking like you're set up for winter. And uh, often in the fall, too, I'll once I kind of check them out, I'll reduce the number of hive boxes I've got on there so that they're going into winter with a smaller space. It's a more condensed cluster of bees in there. There's less bees going through the winter. And then they don't have to keep a big, as big an area warm. 
So I, I usually take my worries around here down to two boxes. But in the summertime, I may have five boxes on there on some of mine. Most of them are probably just four. Uh, anyway. So it's, on the worry hives, you call them boxes, whereas on the Langstroth, you're going to call them supers? Yeah, supers and deeps. There's a little bit of lingo on them, and I, frankly, I just call them boxes. <laughs> okay, all right. All um, right. And then there's top bar hives, which are horizontal hives. They're not vertical. They're horizontal. And I think these are actually pretty easy for people to to – they can be interactive with the hive, but they don't have to disturb it a whole lot. And one advantage of the top bars is you don't have to be strong to do it. You set the hive up one time, and you've – you know, you're picking up bars to do something, but you're not picking up whole boxes to do it. So if you're not as strong, a top bar is probably the way to go. Uh, a full honey box could weigh, you know, 40, 50, even 60 pounds, as I found out one day when I wasn't expecting it to be full. And I picked it up and started to, you know, swing it over the table. Whole box. Anyway, the... um with the top bars, there are, they are pretty easy to take care of, but you also have to take care of them. Um, one of the downsides of it is you can't just make this like a warray where you can practically ignore it and the bees are going to survive just fine. The top bar, the, the hive can get honey bound, which is it's a fixed amount of space that it, it can expand into. You can't add extra boxes. So you have to go in there and check them out and make sure that they haven't collected so much honey that now the honey is is taking up some of the brood space because what will happen is the queen can't lay more eggs because there's honey in there instead of empty cells. So you have to do that. So they all have their advantages. Um, I think, and and then I'm going to mention one more kind of hive too, which is a tree hive. And you have a really nice example with Sep's stump hive. And I have a really nice example of a tree hive that somebody cut down, and we actually cut off an 11-foot section and brought it here to our farm, and they, the bees live inside of that. Those And by me having an example, you mean <laughs> this is where Zach Weiss posted something on, on Permies. I, I didn't have anything to do with it other than, you know, I just pay the bills for the website. <laughs> and at the Queen's English, you have a, a <laughs> at permies.com. Ah, yeah, the greater you. <laughs> yes. There's a really nice example of Sep's stump hive. And, yes. Uh, and then I've got a tree hive. And, you know, with the, the tree hives, if you can just <clears> – <throat> have people call me sometimes and they say, oh, we have bees living in a tree out on the sidewalk strip. You know, it's like – and they, they seem to think that they should be calling me to come move them. I'm like, you know what? These are the bees that are responsible for all the pollination in your neighborhood. Nobody is putting any chemicals on them or anything. These are super healthy bees. Leave them right where they are. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to be moving them anywhere. Just leave them where they are. Let them, and they'll throw out swarms of healthy bees that will go off and propagate new hives elsewhere. You know, it's a really cool thing to have a tree hive. I love the image of what Sep did with the little curved hinge door on his. That's, that's something people should go look at. How do they find it on permies.com? Because it's a cool image. Oh, um, well, when people ask me to go look for it, and now I'm kind of curious how many people have looked at this thread, um, it's been looked at uh, 12,647 times. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's pretty popular. But um, uh, what I end up doing, well, first of all, it's it's in the forum, uh, Honeybees Forum, and now we have a new forum called Sepp Holzer. So we're, we're starting to create forums that are dedicated to some of the, the bigs. 
Um, so it's in both. So this thread appears in two forms simultaneously: honeybees and in Sepholzer. So um, that those would be two fast ways to be able to find it. Um, yeah. Now I I think it's important because we're we're working with the um, the the podcast format. So this is a strictly audio format. And so I think everybody knows what a Langstroth hive looks like. I mean, these are the boxes that are just piled up, and they're typically painted white, and I, I don't like the paint myself, but but they're boxes, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and they have a flat top. And then if you open them up, like let's pretend for a moment there's no bees in there, but it's all set up and ready to go. If you open it up, then there's um, going to be on, on any given level – there's going to be a bunch of frames in there. And and sometimes you can do it just like a top bar kind of thing where you just have the little stick across the top and then um, the bees will build comb on that. So it effectively does the same thing that's done in the uh, ware or the top bar and you can pull out a section. You've got to be very careful because mm-hmm. the comb can break off. Yeah. Um, better to do it on a cooler day. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want to ever, when you're lifting comb, you never want to tilt it sideways because the weight of the honey or whatever's in the in the comb itself will cause that wax to just snap right off. So when you take out a, a, a comb, you leave it vertical just the way it is that you lifted it out. Right. Now, of course, one of the things you could do is that there can be a, a complete frame, which is going to be like, there's little bits off the top bar. There's bits of wood going down and across the bottom. Yeah, so you're making and a then, rectangle. Yeah. And sometimes there'll be a couple of wires going through that. And if the bees build comb on that, then you can be a, a little less careful if you wanted to be because yeah. the frame and the wires will help to hold that in place. And they've usually glued it all along the side. They built right out to the edges often. Right. Oh, yeah. Propolis City here, holding it <laughs> together. So, um, uh, and now the thing that we do not want, and we being permaculture people, is we do not want to put any comb in there that, like, gets things started, whether it's wax or plastic or whatever it is. We we want the bees to create their comb to their own size. Yeah, and what you're talking about, let me make a distinction on that. What you're talking about is, you can go to the bee supply store or you can go on the internet and you can buy ready-made comb and put it right inside of your hive and the bees will build on this plastic comb and it looks like it's got, you know, the little hexagonals um, to a certain size. There's a number of reasons why you don't want to do it. And again, you know, I started out like this. They told me at the bee club to go buy this stuff and that's what I went and bought. So, you know, I've used all this stuff myself. Um, what happens with that is, first of all, the bees need to be able to modify size. So if the queen is going to lay an egg in a cell that's going to hatch into a, a worker bee, a female, it's a certain size. If she's going to lay one into a cell that is going to become a drone, which is a bigger boy bee, that cell should be a little larger than than the size of the female cell. So she needs to have a there be a size distinction that tells what the function of that cell is. A honey cell could be deeper. Um, the there's a, a consistency to it, but you know, let's say you buy some big fat old comb that's got the plastic impressions on there, and they're bigger than the size of the bees that are living in that hive. Well, now everything's going to have to 
become modify it's going to modify it. the bee will modify itself to the size of that fixed comb and i don't think that's a healthy thing i think i'd rather let my bees make their babies the size that they want them make them you know am i saying this clearly enough <laughs> well I, yeah, I think the important thing is is that with the the bigger cell the gestation period for the little baby bee is typically about two to three days longer. Yes, and it which, does a, a bad thing in there, which is if there's mites in the hive, more yeah. mites hatch out. So you don't want that, and and you want you know you want the bees heading towards smaller size because that's actually part of nature's way of dealing with the mites. You know, not enough mites hatch because the bees aren't in their cells long enough. The bigger the bee, the longer they're in there, the more mites that you have. The smaller the bee, the more you go in the opposite direction, and eventually you're working towards being mite-free because you know, the hive has a number of ways to deal with that. So that's pretty cool. These plastic frames, though, I want to say another thing that I find negative about them. Bees communicate by the comb. You know, that is, that's their telephone line in there. And they can hear everything that's going on inside the hive based on the vibration that's going on on each one of these hanging wax combs. So if you've got bees that are taking pollen and stamping it with their feet into the cell, there's a certain sound, there's a rhythm that happens with that. Uh, in another part of the hive, you might have, here's the movement of the queen, and she's got this little, like it looks like a daisy. The queen is in the center and all of her handmaidens are caring for her in, in like this little this, the petals of the daisy coming out from her they're all focused on her can I clean your leg can I feed you you know oh you pooped I'll take that out um you know <laughs> it, it they're always taking care of her that way so she moves as a contingent of maybe 10 or 12 bees across the face of the comb and that will have a certain sound and vibration of the comb um, another place would be the, in the nursery where the babies are being born and you would actually hear them chewing their way out of their cell. So when this, when all of this activity is going on in the hive, all the bees have their perception wide open to hear, here's the status of the hive right now. And it's just like listening to an orchestra. There's different sound and vibration going on throughout the whole hive saying, we're doing really, really well. And if there's something not going quite, quite well, then the hive also hears that. They hear, you know, those wax makers, they're kind of having a hard time there. So the whole hive, is per, it, it, their perception is open to the status of the hive at every given moment. And they know they're either doing well or doing not so well. And they know where to send other bees. You know, other bees will go, you guys need some help. I'll come down in there, do some of that. So if you put plastic in there, it doesn't have that same capacity for vibration, and it takes away one of the bees' communications. I, I think that's something that you know, in conventional beekeeping, you're not going to hear people talk about that because it's just not thought of to be all that important. You know, the tasks get done anyway, and the bees do make do, but it isn't ideal. And that's what I'm always looking for with how we take care of bees is what makes it ideal to the needs of the bee? How can it be more bee-centric? So now I want to I want to kind of describe the the hive so that we so people can understand you know what we're talking about here. So we've got uh, the, it's it's a flat. I mean, there's just a flat lid on top of um, these these boxes that have a very fixed size, and inside the box is going to typically be um, a collection of frames. 
And um, sometimes it's just the bar. Sometimes there's more to it. It's also possible to do the plastic foundation or the wax foundation, although you and I both agree, don't, please don't do that. Please don't do um, that. I do sometimes, though. I save my comb over from, you know, from prior years, and sometimes I, and it's already attached to the comb that I, like let's say I just harvested some honey from. I'll cut that off, but I'll leave maybe the top two inches of comb on there, and sometimes even with the honey still in it. And I will use that when I have a new swarm starting off, I'm happy to put a few bars of that on top, and the bees like it. They'll continue building comb on down, and, hey, there's a little bit of honey there for them to get started with, too. But that's okay. different. That's They made all that. So then <clears throat> um, uh, the usually what they're going to do with a Langstroth hive is that you're going to have uh, two supers on the bottom, and then you're going to have a queen excluder, and then you'll have like two or three supers on top. Yeah. And what happens is the stuff on top is going to contain only honey because the queen can't get up there to lay any eggs. And the stuff in the bottom two supers is going to contain both eggs and honey. And so then the idea is, is that when you want to harvest, then you'll just snag one of those top boxes, pull it out, and then put the lid back down on whatever's left. Uh-huh. So that's... Langstroth. Have I left anything out? No, that's a good a, a good description of it too. And I I look at this like you know what I hear you saying there when you're describing that is that it's easier for the beekeeper. And every time I hear and it's easier for the beekeeper, man, my antenna go up about huh? What are we thwarting that's in the bees process that we may not think is very important to the hive and yet might be. My perception about that is that when we make any part of the hive not the domain of the queen, we alter something about it. And I and I don't think it's so cool to do that. I don't use queen excluders. Actually, I have a queen excluder. We use it when we sift compost. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we've, we've uh, repurposed that that way. But, you know, that was, again, that was the way I learned it. You put your queen excluder on, and that way there's no eggs laid up there in the honey. Well, um you know, my experience is when I stopped using the queen excluder many years ago, probably my first year, that that doesn't happen very often anyway, because the queen wants all of the queen and the whole hive. They don't want to have eggs somewhere out of the nursery. I mean, that would why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense at all. So what they um, you know, the nursery is the nursery. That's where the baby eggs are laid. And they're going to be pretty much all right in that one single area. What I think we're thwarting with that, so it's it's a logical thing, and if you were doing a, it's a logical thing, but it's it's a human thing, not a bee thing. I think what happens, I've seen the queen go wandering. She does uh, she does a walkabout every once in a while, and the walkabout is just she takes a little bit of a break and she goes and looks around in the other parts of the hive, and my perception of that is that when she does that, it's like. It's like the queen comes by. You know, the queen just came out here to the hinterlands. And she's just, you know, everybody's taking off their hat and going down on one knee as she walks by. And what she's doing is she's letting her scent permeate the periphery of the hive. When she does that, it doesn't happen very often. But when her scent is there, it gives them this idea that, you know, the queen was here and because she's the one who's the center of the hive and the one who lays all the eggs, I think it gives them this this feeling that the queen could, if they wanted, 
they could expand the brood area all the way up to here and they could become even larger. Now, they're not going to do that, but they could do that. And I think there's something very calming and very inspiring about the queen laying her scent down in these hinterlands every once in a while. So I want to give her the opportunity to do that. Okay, so now <clears throat> I that was that was really cool. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> I've I've always just used the queen excluder. I always kind of thought, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, you won't be using it easy. <laughs> so um, uh, now let's talk about the waré hive and how it compares to the langstroth because they're very similar in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're similar. And you know, I'm not an expert on langs, so I used them my first few years when I was I was dumber than most. So I I don't really um, claim to know everything about how to teach Lang stuff because I moved right over to top bars and worries uh, probably by my third year I was in those. And that's what I've been in for the, the rest of my time doing bee stuff. Um, so the difference is um, when you use Langs, you're adding box. Well, go ahead. You describe what you're doing with your Langs and I'll add on to that. Well, I, you know, I, my first thought with a waré is you can always oh there's a waré you can tell because it's got like a, a roof on it like a roof with some slope to it like if it rains or snows it's going to run off mm-hmm. whereas with the Langstroth hives they've got it's flat that flat top yeah where water know. can just pool up there and it, it provides some um, now you if do- you're using a bee hut which I advocate. <laughs> Then, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's not going to get wet anyway. Yeah, yeah, but up at where you live, yeah, with that amount of snow, yeah, put them in a hut. <laughs> um, anyway, with the Langstroths, you're putting your honey boxes on top, and the bees are filling it, and then you're taking your honey boxes off. And generally, right. you leave, I, I think, now remember, I'm not an expert on the Langs, but I think you're pretty much leaving your bottom part the way it is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that, that's what I remember, too. Now, in the warres, what you do is you, when you went to, when you go to add a new box, you don't add it to the top like a lang. You actually add it, you lift up the whole hive and you add it to the bottom. And then you remove one from the top when you're ready to harvest the honey. So the brood is going to be down on the bottom and it encourages the hive to build down. One of the things I like about this process of picking up the whole hive, putting a new box on the bottom, and when you harvest, taking stuff off the top, is that it encourages the renewal of comb. You know, each time you add a new box to the bottom and the bees build more new fresh wax comb, and they move down into it, and they, the queen will start laying more eggs down in the bottom part there, uh, and you take away something from the top, you know, over the span of, say, two years, you've got, in the third year, you've got all new comb. In there, so each year there's old comb being taken away and new comb gets gets built. In a Langstroth, you could use that old comb for ten years, and it'll get thicker and darker and um, and older. But the reason I think the renewal of comb is so important is because these days there's so many chemicals out there, and I'm not talking about just the chemicals you put on the bees inside the hive that the beekeeper does, but also everywhere that they're flying around, they're getting they're getting on uh, somebody who sprayed their roses or something, and it may not be enough to kill them, but it comes back on them and it ends up in the wax. You know, their little bee footprints are on the wax or their, um, you know, their 
building with it. And I know I've read these studies where they've done tests of comb that they took from all over the United States, all over the United States, and they didn't find anything that was clean. I know D. Lesby down in Arizona got probably the only absolutely clean wax thing I've heard of. And I think there's somebody up in probably the hinterlands of, of you know, the great north that is doing somebody in Alaska might be able to say this too, but there's not enough agriculture around where her bees are way out in the desert that there that there was any notice of any detectable pesticide residue or herbicide residue in the comb. That's extraordinarily unusual. Every single other one they tested had anywhere from like 30 all the way up to, I think the top was 120. It might have even been more. Different kinds of toxic chemicals in the wax. And the bees are living on that. You know, along those lines, my understanding is that if you're going to have organic certified honey, that you have to you have to have control of all land within a five mile radius of yeah, the hive. That's about the only way you could do it. Yeah, and and so, but part of me kind of thinks that along with what we advocate is um, if you have like let, let's suppose for a moment that you have a single hive, and and then within. 300 feet of the hive, you have planted a jungle of three-season forage, just all kinds of blooms, all kinds of plants, just, you know, a hundred different species of stuff that just pumps out the nectar. Um, then I think, and if you have only only one hive, I, I think there's there's a very good chance that no bee will go farther than 300 feet. Now this is speculation. I'm guessing, of course. There's, but but I, I I wonder how you feel about this. I think they would go farther than that because by nature they're they're a bit of explorers. They'd like to see what's out there. But if you could control, like you got a big piece of land up there, you probably oh, yeah. could do a pretty fine job with it. I happen to be lucky enough that I live. Uh, you know, way out at the end of the road, pretty rural. But like I said earlier, you know, I got a neighbor who still sprays and I can't control that. But I I don't have any industry out here where we are. I don't have uh, a lot of the things that people would have further closer into the city. So I've got 225 acres. Yep. um, And then at the same time, I am uh, mountains on either side of my property. With nobody, nobody, you know, sharing this valley with me. Yep, exceptional situation, and man, go for it because you could probably build yeah. some pretty strong bees who really can stay right in the valley. Yeah, so I, I mean, this is there's a lot of reasons because the other thing is is like you know uh, um, for air pollinated, wind pollinated stuff. It's like um, you know I'm thinking like oh I don't want to cross pollinate with GMOs, you know, yeah. and and so I want to control that so there's a for for selecting this property this was part of it was to be able to be far away from most of that now now granted you know like i think the nearest one might be a mile and a half to somebody who might have some kind of garden that they might manage conventionally and so um that would be you know but but i'm part of me is kind of thinking like well if i can provide enough forage for the bees really close by, then the bees might tend to explore, but maybe they'll only explore a mile instead of exploring five miles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so 
That's uh-huh. but but I'm even kind of thinking like you know ninety nine point nine percent of the time maybe they'll stay within the three hundred feet. Uh-huh. You know and but and it's even plausible maybe that they'll like not a single bee will go beyond three hundred feet. I, and so then this is this space where I'm kind of like thinking maybe possibly you know and you can try so. So I, I do think that what you're saying is fascinating, and this is the first I've heard of it, um, that when they've tested the wax from all these hives, and, and including ones where people were probably being very passionate about treatment-free, then um, it's like, nope, still got it. Still got the pesticides. Yeah, yep. yeah. how are you going to get around that? Yeah. Well, I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I mean, it's going to be very hard for you because you've got – don't you have something like 12 acres, 15 acres, something like that? Um, we farm on 18 acres. Because you're leasing some in addition. Yep. We have 10 acres yeah. ourselves, and then we have, um, we have eight more acres that we lease. And there's, no, there's really not any agriculture up here where I am. I've got the National Forest about a mile away from me. And I worry sometimes when I see them cutting trees up there that they're spraying herbicides because that is within, I can see, that's about two miles away where they cut some trees. And I'm like, eh, you know, come on, bees, stay home. Don't go up there. It's scary. See, now, that's I'm surrounded by forest land. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, but the thing is where you are, then it's like you've got a lot of other little properties around you that are, you know, within a mile, there might be like a hundred other little properties. And and if 50 of them are, are raising conventional gardens, then it's kind of like, well, then, you know, that's, that's what you got to deal with. So, but um, on the other hand, um, since you are in a low ag area, then, you know, a lot of these toxins that are, that are you know, especially toxic to bees, you're probably not having to deal with nearly as much. Yeah, yeah. All right. So it seems like so so far we're just focusing on these two styles of hives. You've got Langstroth and Ware, and then um, uh, in many ways they're very similar. The the one of the things about the um, the Ware hive is that you've got this the, the 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 box on the top is a little bit bigger, and then then the other boxes below. Well, the box on the top is called the quilt and the blanket. And this is a really cool thing. Um, if you have, what it does is it, 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 the hive, the way the boxes are st- standing vertically, there's going to be movement of air inside. And one of the things that happens, in, one of the things that's a problem for a lot of beekeepers is moisture within the hive. You know, moisture at the improper time of year can turn into mold. And we run into that here. You know, if I, in the springtime, we get a lot of rain. And the temperature is going up and down and up and down and up and down. So combined with bees waking up and, you know, having a lot of activity and then, whoops, it's a cold night and they don't have so much, that temperature fluctuation creates some moisture, as well as the fact that the moisture in the air does that too. And I think that happens in a lot of, you know, not the desert, but a lot of different parts of the country. So what um, what they do in the, in the worries is you have, you put a piece of burlap across the top of the top of the box, the, the highest box. And we actually dip it in a, a little slurry of rye flour. We make it up like paste and paint it on there. And that way the bees won't eat through the burlap. <laughs> so they don't apparently don't like the taste of the rye. Um, and it just gives enough so that the, the moisture can actually still go through the burlap 
up into what's on top of that, which is a quilt. So that's I laid down the blanket there, a burlap, and then on top of it, I've got a little a little box. We call it an eek. It's just maybe about three or four inches high, and it's a bottomless box. But on the bottom, what we've done is stapled on another piece of burlap. This one doesn't have anything on it because the bees won't be coming up there anyway. So it's now you've got a, a box that's holding. Um, it's got burlap on the bottom, and we fill it up with like. Uh, um, uh, not sawdust, saw, like wood chips, that, like the kind of stuff you'd put in a hamster cage. Okay. And what that does is you've got this dry material in there. Sometimes I put moss off the dried moss that hangs on the trees around here just because I like to do something local to my place in there. Um, and it, it as the moisture comes up, it rises in the air on the inside, just like going up a chimney, it passes through, the moisture passes right through the burlap, and it settles in on all of these wood chips that you've got in there. And that holds the moisture apart from the hive. So what that does is it prevents moisture from accumulating in the corners and on the edges and stuff. And then you don't get that that mossy, mildewy, uh, moldy, excuse me, mildewy stuff going on in there, which is much better for the bees. So you're preventing fungal activity. Okay. So and then and then the bigger box is just that, that goes above it is, that's the roof. is just pretty much empty. Yeah, yeah that's just an empty uh, uh, peaked roof, like you're saying, and that's just to keep water flowing off of it or snow. From and it allows air to pass through it. Too. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. yeah so yeah, 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 it's really nice. It allows. So the design of the worry keeps the heat in appropriately. If it's too too um, hot or too too wet then all that the temperature can rise up and provide a little bit of cooling to it as well. So it's a pretty clever design and I, I'm really quite fond of them. And and so really the 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 difference I mean because the boxes, the supers, are are pretty much exactly the same uh-huh. between Langstroth and Warre. Uh-huh. They're a little bit smaller in size. Okay. But and and then of course there's the, the the technique is different. Whereas with the Langstroth, you leave the two supers on the bottom alone, and then with the Ware, you will rotate them up and through. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how do you lift? How do you lift that that bunch of boxes on you a Ware? Some people make um, they they actually make hive lifts where it's kind of like a fork what uh, forklift. Uh-huh. But of course it's just a it's just a pulley that you, you slide it underneath and you can put the pulley up above it and it just lifts the whole thing up. That's a little too gung-ho for us. Usually it's uh, my husband, Joseph, and when we have somebody like like Paul, if you came to visit, we would choose that to be the day that we add a new box on the bottom. <laughs> okay. All right. It's going to be a grunt fest. Yep. I put two, <laughs> I put two okay. strong guys on either side of the hive. They lift it up. I put a new box underneath, and off we go. Now, if I was, uh, you know. Just to be clear, I don't fill the role of strong guy. I feel I fill the role of giant guy. Not <laughs> Not necessarily the same. <laughs> well, if you were a single woman living by yourself, you may want to think twice about the worries just because you, you've got to at least, you know, you're going to have to have dinner for two people sometimes. <laughs> okay. Then, All right. All but right. it's tough to do on your own. Although I, I have done it right now. I'm about to add a box to one of mine. And I almost did it by myself the other day. And I thought, why should I do that? I have a husband. I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> <laughs> but it is something I can do on my own. It's just easier to do with somebody else. Okay. All right. All right. 
Okay, so we've got uh, the, I think we've covered the Langstroth versus Waray. Um, have I left anything out about what's different between them? I mean, they're, they're rather similar. Yeah, uh, and the, the thing that's um, the pluses and minuses on it, Lang's good for honey production, top bar hives, you know, easy to get in and out and work with the hive. Waray's um, hands-off beekeeping, so easy if you're not going to be invading your hive very often. Uh, those are all the pluses. Um, Langs, I don't think they're really healthfully as strong. Uh, they're, they're not the best for the bee family themselves. I just don't think they really let bees be bees in the way that I like to see it. The top bars, you do actually have to go in and make sure they're not honey bound. And the negative on the worries is you might have to do a little heavy lifting if you're really successful with them. So they've got well, they've all got their pluses and minuses. Now, now let's talk about, I mean, now we're going to go to talk about the top bar a little bit more. I mean, I mean basically, I, I wanted to talk about the Langstroth and the Warays because I think that they're very similar. Uh-huh. And and so the quilt is an addition to the Waray. Yep, so moisture, um, the ability to deal with moisture is a big plus that the Waray does that the Langs don't do. Okay, all right, all right. So um, uh, so the, the, the quilt would probably be the most positive thing that I see. I mean, mm-hmm. basically, you could still ro- you know, take the queen excluder out of a Langstroth, uh-huh. and then you can still rotate through them just like you do with a Waray. Um, and, in, and then, in fact, if you're already in a bee hut, you don't need the fancy little roof except for the part where it does allow air to come through. Um, and, you know, air passes through a little bit better on the Waray roof than it would on a Langstroth. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, so, I mean, they're very similar in a lot of ways. And, and so, <clears throat> but now the top bar is really very different. And in that um, it's kind of shaped like a trough. And, and you don't stack anything on top of anything else. It's just a trough. It's a fixed thing with a lid. It's a trough with a lid. And you pull the lid off. And when, and the lid has kind of a roof-like shape, but you pull the lid off, and then there's going to be a whole bunch of bars across the top, which is what you got in a ware, and you can do in a Langstroth. Uh huh. And and um, that's that's it. That's all there. That's all there is now. You know, the, and then there's going to be like a, an end of it where the bees can come and go and 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 stuff. But um, it's a very different-looking animal. Yep. It's uh, it's horizontal. I, I kind of like them. I actually didn't like them for a while, so I've kind of come full circle with them. Um, I had them in my second and third years, and here in the Northwest, I found I just had those dampness issues every single year, and I lost hives to that. I lost hives to our temperature fluctuation is so much in the springtime that, you know, the, there was so much moisture in the hives in the spring that I couldn't keep ahead of it. And, you know, it, it was invading the comb. And, and normally, if you have healthy hives, they can deal with a little bit of that, but not at the scale that it was happening in my hives. So I dumped them. I just said, no, I'm not going to do top bars anymore. I, I lose hives to the moisture issue. And I moved over because of the moisture issue. I moved over to the worries. But I've learned more about them since, and now I'm back into having a love affair with top bar hives. Uh, Corwin Bell is a friend of mine, and he's been out here and taught some classes specifically on uh, on top bars, and you know, and kind of showed me ways to deal with the moisture. And I was like, "Geez, I wish I knew that a few years ago." 
So anyway, I'm I'm kind of liking him again. You just have to care for him a little bit differently than I than I had been. He's got a nice website, um, backyard uh, backyardbeekeeping.com. I think it is. Let me just check it. And he has a beautiful video. Um, that's the best beekeeping video I've seen. What you mean? Other than the one I made, that's got you in it? No, his is a real. His is a teaching video. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> Back here. Oh, wait a minute. My, mine was definitely focused on colony collapse disorder is already solved. Um, everybody can stop panicking. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I kind of feel like all the panic over colony collapse disorder is so that it, there can be sales of some product later. Yeah. You know, fear, fear-based fear sales. Um, There's but, always uh, a market for that. This is oh, Corwin's yeah. website is backyardhive.com. And it's okay. excellent. And he's got, I think, the best video on actually how to do it that anybody's oh. made yet. Really oh, lovely. Beautiful lovely. visuals. And if you knew nothing about it and you just watched his video, you'd go, ah, I got skills now. So okay. good good example. How did you solve the moisture issue with the top bar hive? <sighs> Let's see. Well, but you forgot already. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I did was I I keep an eye on it more. And what I was doing before, because I was so hands off in my beekeeping, I really wasn't paying attention. And then I'd go look at the hive and go, oh no, three whole combs are filled with mold. Oh, now I'm I'm watching them more. I'm taking. It. But the biggest thing I think of all is the fact that I keep them undercover. You know, before I had them out in the middle of the yard. So when the wood got wet, if you think of, again, I mentioned this earlier, you know, the function of raw unpainted wood <laughs> is that moisture can move from the inside to the outside. It can just, you know, trans Breathe. wood breathes. But if I have, if I live here in a place where it rains for many months of the year and my wood is wet all the time, that transpiration doesn't happen. The wood doesn't breathe because how's it going to take the moisture from the inside to the outside when the outside's wet already? The outside's wetter than the inside. So I was kind of making my own problem there. As soon as I moved these top bar hives undercover, that whole problem went away. And and by undercover, you mean to the gazebo? To the gazebo. The, the One of my friends calls it a bezebo. <laughs> a bezebo. Okay. That's pretty cool. And, uh, and then, of course, this is, I mean, effectively, it's the same thing as, as the bee hut, which I saw. Yeah, the bee hut. Strongly you, advocate. You just want to cover your hives. Put a roof over it so that the, the wood doesn't get wet. And, and, and you know, handled I, it. I just want to say, just real quickly, because this is kind of an audio format. Um, what is a, a, a bee hut? Um, and and so let me give it a stab, and then and then I'll turn <laughs> it over, turn it back over to you. And so basically, when I built my bee hut, I took two logs, I put a bunch of two by fours across the bottom, and I did put gaps of like a quarter of an inch between each two by four, and then um, on on. Uh, at six points, I went up and had uh, a roof, a metal roof. I just put a shed roof over it. And now I had this structure that I could drag around with my tractor. <laughs> and and then I faced the high point of the shed roof to the southeast. And and so what happens is, is that – and the roof was like a good eight or nine feet tall. Um, and then I, I put three – it's, I don't know, the platform was probably about, I'm going to say, seven feet, six to seven feet wide and um, probably about 
um, 12 to 15 feet long. Uh-huh. Um, and I got there's a picture of it at Permies, um, the one that I built. And um, anyway, I put three hives on there, and they were Langstroth hives. And I spaced them just right so that in the wintertime I could fit straw bales in between the hives and around the hives. Um, and by facing it to the southeast, then um, I'm able to get um, the sunrise in the morning because uh, in, the, in the summertime, you still need to warm things up in the morning. And then in the summertime, then the sun goes over the shed roof. So all day long, it's in shade. Mm-hmm. But in the wintertime, the sun is low. Yeah, that's what I found in mine, too. Then, then they're getting sun all day long in the wintertime. So, um, uh, but the thing is, is that I, I didn't paint them and not a drop of rain ever hit them. I mean, when I make these shed roofs, I make them, the, the shed roof very large. So that way I don't have to paint anything. The shed, the, the bee hut itself was never painted and, um, uh, it, and it did fine because the, it was a metal roof and it extended, you know, so far beyond all the wood that nothing ever got anything wet on it. Yeah, yeah. And so the whole thing stays dry, and it's far enough up off of the ground, and the ground where it's placed is also kept dry, that there's not a lot of fungal activity going on and up into the hives. So they're kept dry, and and keeping it really dry, I think, is, is part of the recipe. But it's also more comfortable and when your bees are more comfortable, they're less stressed and they're more resilient to everything. Plus, on top of that, they just build honey, uh, build comb and wax and honey and everything so much faster. Yeah, they're not busy doing repair work or fix it or something. They, they can really focus on what they're wanting to do. Or dealing with illness. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they're just healthier and stronger and more vibrant and more productive. Okay, so now there's there's – the bee hut that I built ages ago, and we're going to probably build another one this year um, now that I'm on the new farm. Um, and, um, and now, granted, yours, your gazebo is far more beautiful than my bee hut, but my <laughs> bee hut was portable. I could drag it around. I like that. I mean, I didn't, but I could. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't I, make me move. They really want to be, you know, where they are. But if you needed to, hey, you know, in Colorado this year when they had those big floods, and that's where my friend Corwin lives. Boy, I, w- I bet he wished they had them there because he said they went out on so many calls where the hives were, uh, they just went underwater. Oh. Uh huh. So, all right. Um, uh, I think we've covered the bee hut stuff well enough. This podcast will continue in part four.